In our day of security cameras and phone cameras and doorbell cameras and dashboard cameras, we are getting all kinds of things recorded and documented that we never have before. A couple months ago, I was flabbergasted by a scene that someone shot on their phone. It was just amazing what they caught. It was down on the, the streets of Toronto on a mid-afternoon in this summer. One car apparently cut off another one as they pulled out into the road. And quite suddenly, both drivers just leaped out of their car and just went at each other. Stormed at each other. Within seconds, there were blows flying. One guy's getting thrown to the ground. This is in the middle of the street. Traffic stopping everywhere. <laughs> it's crazy. And then two guys who never met before just exploding into a brawl. One lady got out of her car to try to, to break up the fight, to plead with them to stop. And as soon as she did, they, they did. They stopped pretty quickly. It was over in about 30 seconds flat. Evidently, no one called the police. No one pressed any charges. They must have thought, felt that justice had been done. They got their blows in, and that was that. <laughs> but I think that this shocking road rage incident reveals something to us about human nature. These drivers were taking to the extreme something that almost all of us nearly automatically feel. Not only do we have an innate sense, a desire for justice to be done, but we instinctually feel an urge to carry out this justice in a reciprocal manner. In other words, if you're wronged by someone else, something wrong should happen to them. That's how we feel. And it's only fair, right? Turnabouts, fair play, you, so fight back, hit back, kick back, whatever. You can see this instinct in very young children, right? No one teaches them to fight back, and yet they often do. Raging, hitting, screaming, scratching, biting, whatever. And even if we learn to suppress this as we grow up, I don't think we tend to really grow out of it at least in our hearts. So don't assume that I'm not talking to you just because you haven't punched anyone lately. We feel this inside. We feel the need for retaliation, for retribution, or revenge often because we are wronged often. Do you know that Jesus knows how we feel? in those moments. And he speaks into our experiences, into our situations. God's word actually has a surprising amount to say about retaliation. And today we're going to see Jesus really interpret the rest of God's word to us about this topic as he informs his followers how he wants us to respond to the evils and hurts that we face. So let's go ahead and turn together to Matthew 5 to hear what he says to us. Matthew chapter 5, we're towards the end of the chapter, verse 38 is where we'll begin today. Over the summer, we've been looking at the, the second half of Matthew 5, looking at all these statements of, but I say to you, so Jesus says, first of all, that he has come to fulfill God's law that, he gave, that God gave his people in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean we are just to dismiss the law, that we aren't to follow it anymore. In fact, Jesus tells us to follow the law all the more. 
And we should have a, a righteousness as his followers that is even greater now, even deeper now, now that the Holy Spirit has written the law on our hearts. There are two final portions to this part of Jesus' sermon. He's spoken about murder, adultery, and swearing oaths so far. And how God is more concerned about what happens in our hearts. And so we've seen that really our sin goes a lot deeper than these big things. It goes to our, our lust, our anger, our insults, even our, our careless promises, careless words. But Jesus' radical challenges may just get the most challenging over the final couple topics. John Stott previews them for us this way. He says, These bring us to the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount, for which it is both most admired and most resented, namely the attitude of total love, which Christ calls us to show towards one who is evil and our enemies. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctness of the Christian counterculture more obvious, and nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling. All right, read with me verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that was indeed a very familiar teaching repeated several times in God's law. It was first given in Exodus 21, which goes, But if there is harm in a dispute between people, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This was a, a principle of, of equal or exact retribution. If someone injured your eye, it was only right that their eye gets injured. If someone knocked out your tooth, it was just for them to lose a tooth as well. Now, one thing to note about this law in Exodus, this was given to Israel's judges. So this was not a license for anyone just to go try to pursue vengeance on their own. These were instructions of how judges were to legally mete out justice in the land. Now, this law may sound very fair to you, very just, or it may sound vindictive, unmerciful, even archaic. But in the context, when this law was given, it would have seen, been seen as both just and merciful. On the one hand, it defined what justice was. On the other, it heavily restrained revenge. Picture it this way. Say you were sitting down to a meal as a family when your brother comes stumbling in the door looking like Chris Neal after a hockey fight. <laughs> All right, he's got gaps in his teeth, his eye is black, maybe there's blood dripping from his face, and you all just leap to your feet. What happened? He goes on to tell you about how he was playing football with some people, and he and another guy got into an uh, altercation. They disagreed over a, a call, they started jawing back and forth, and then all of a sudden, the other guy just blindsides him with a punch. And as he falls to the ground, the guy jumps on him, just starts hammering him some more. Now, at this point, how would you feel, right? You feel this injustice well up within you. You'd probably be fuming. Who would do this to you? 
if, if he tells you, you find out, you all stomp out of the house looking for blood. Now, back in the day before the law had been given, the guy who did this would have been in grave danger because your family would have been literally out for blood. That is what you would have gone to do. It's very possible you would have tracked the guy down and even killed him for that assault. Disputes, conflicts, family feuds had this tendency to explode into further excessive violence, even deadly violence. What this law did, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was it established some clear limits. Right? Someone knocked out your brother's tooth, they should lose a tooth too, but no more than that. Or you couldn't go take a guy's head off for hurting your eye. The law was there to rein in excesses and anger and violence and revenge. But in Jesus' day, the religious teachers had taken this law and they had made it very personal. They had given it, made it a right, even a, a duty. Instead of restraining revenge, they actually used it to justify revenge. John Wenham explains that this excellent, if stern, principle of judicial retribution was being utilized as an excuse for the very thing it was instituted to abolish, namely personal revenge. It was meant to restrict revenge, to restrict justice to the, to the court system, to ensure that punishments fit the crime. But people were using it to say, they hurt me so I can hurt them, however I feel. You have heard... That it was said, it was said then, and it is still said now. Right? Many, many parents tell their children, if a bully hits you, hit them back. Right? Many of us still believe that's the best tactic as adults, too, even if it's not violence. You still do the same thing. Right? If, you, if someone harasses you at work, stand up for yourself. Fight back. If someone, someone is mean to you online, give them a piece of your mind. Someone breaks your heart, go ahead and ruin their reputation. Gossip or slander. Someone yells at you, yell louder. And into his context and our context, Jesus speaks. But I say to you, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is... A very surprising command. Where it's familiar to us, it wasn't to the people who first heard it. It's going to take some explaining. But first, here's the basic point. We should respond to evil, not with retaliation, but with acceptance. Right? Jesus' followers should respond to evil with acceptance instead of retaliation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now Jesus was totally preparing his disciples here. They would face things like this in time. And one day, this may in fact happen to you. 
Right? You may, someone may physically hurt you. But really, this extends further than that. And this applies to, to any time anyone does anything evil to you. And that happens all the time. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That's the main principle here. Turning the other cheek is one example of that. Charles Spurgeon says, We are to be as the anvil when bad men are the hammers. Now, this isn't saying that anyone who hurts you is pure evil. Now, everyone is a sinner, of course, but you may be hurt by generally good people. Anyone is capable of doing evil to you, even me. Right? You, this shouldn't be surprising to you by now as we've gone through Matthew 5 and we've seen how bad our lust and our anger and our words can be. This verse is also not saying that we shouldn't resist the evil one, a.k.a. the devil. Right? We just saw in 1 Peter, he tells us to resist the devil firm in your faith. Certain evils need to be resisted with all we've got, and that especially temptation. Now, this is referring to other people who wrong us in various ways. We are not supposed to resist them, Jesus says, even if their evil's malicious. Instead, we're to just take it? Really? That sure seems to be like what Jesus is saying, right? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Actually, it's even more than just allowing the abuse. It seems to be inviting more, right? Show them it can be done, done again. Even if you've never actually been slapped before, I expect you can imagine how you'd feel when that would happen. I just picture someone coming along and walloping you. <laughs> how would you feel? How would you react? You feel shock, anger, pain, humiliation. Would you feel offended or insulted? You might feel the need to, to defend your honor. No one treats me like that. Fight back. We all feel these things, slap or no slap, all the time. Same feelings. We are abused in so many other ways as well. We can feel injured by a simple comment or even a look that someone gives us. And Jesus wants us to stand there and take it, to receive it, to accept it, Yes. Do you know that Proverbs 19.11 tells us that good sense makes one slow to anger and it is our glory to overlook an offense. Christians should, be, should not be easily offended people. And in a culture like ours, where everyone seems to be offended by everything, this can be so difficult to do, but it can also make us stand out all the more. But why would Jesus have us do this? Why should we just accept the evil that people throw our way? 
I'm going to give you an answer, but I'm warning you that you may not like it. All right? Why would Jesus want us to do this? It's because God is sovereign. He's in control. And God is just. And we aren't. Retaliation is simply not our job. Okay? Every, whenever we retaliate quickly against those who hurt us, it's like we're in a courtroom and a judge is hearing our case against someone else, but right as the, the trial gets started, we run up to the front, force our way into the judge's box, try to, to yell out a verdict ourselves on a sentence on the person, grab the gavel and give it a good bang. You may know the other person is in the wrong, right? So you think you can pronounce a verdict. That's fine. Jesus says that we may know that they're evil, that they're doing evil to us, but that doesn't give us the right to seek our own justice or revenge. If we want true justice to be done, we have to trust the judge. Scripture teaches frequently that vengeance is God's job. That's his arena. And he is even called the God of vengeance in Psalm 94. For just one example of this, Romans 12, verse 17 to 19 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If we truly believed that, if we truly believe this, our desire for instant retribution should begin to dissipate. We are to leave our case, leave our cause in the hands of God. Or as Peter says, to entrust ourselves, our souls, to a faithful creator while doing good. You have never been slapped. You have never been injured apart from the sovereignty of God. Anything that comes your way comes through him. He allows it to happen. That may not be easy to accept, but it's true. And only once you accept that will you be able to accept evil from other people in this way. God promises that he's got your back that he will repay those who wrong his people. So do we believe that? Now you may still have alarm bells going off in your head because your question wasn't why. Your question is more, how could Jesus ask us to do this? How could he ask us? I mean, what about abuse? Right? Shouldn't we resist evil abuse? You may think this command is more than unnatural. It may be unethical. Passively accepting evil, turning the other cheek, is that not enabling abuse? Even inviting it, encouraging it? 
How could Jesus tell us to possibly even invite further harm? Let me say a few things very carefully here. Jesus, this is first and most importantly, Jesus by no means excuses or allows for abuse. It is clearly called evil here. All right? Do not resist the one who is evil. If you are an abuser of your family or other people, you should be petrified of God's justice because it's coming for you. What's a promise for them is a threat for you. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay? Secondly, there are vastly differing levels of abuse. What people mean by abuse. So many different things are meant by abuse. There are, are certain levels of harm. Certain levels of what would be called abuse, especially verbal or emotional, I would say, that Christians perhaps should learn to endure. To take courage and to trust God. That's not easy to say. It's definitely not what the world would tell you. You go, but, 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 I know. I'm not done yet. All right? I believe higher levels of abuse, whether that's in harm, in frequency, or in continuity, should not be tolerated. If you are in an unsafe place, there's nothing in this passage that says you need to stay or that you should stay in that place. Accept the pain, yes. Take it, but then get out. Okay, get yourself somewhere safe. We should never enable or encourage sins to multiply or to continue unaddressed. Abusers should be asked to stop, told to stop, and called to repentance. Here's the thing. Accepting abuse does not mean passivity. That does not mean acting on the abuse or not acting on the abuse. Legally seeking justice and peace is not retaliation. Okay? Legally seeking justice and peace is not personal retaliation. So call the cops if need be. Make sure you're not doing this out of hatred or vengeance, but still, God establishes authorities and he gives them the right to bear the sword. The point is, we are not to try to enact the justice ourselves. We are not to retaliate or fight back. We are not to repay evil for evil. We are not to abuse in return, to sin in return. But none of those preclude seeking justice in God-ordained ways. If we claim to follow Christ, believe this tells us that we must earnestly resist our natural heart desire for revenge. All because we trust God that he means what he says and that he'll do what he promises. So kids here, how are you responding to other kids that pick on you? 
What about your brothers or sisters? If they hurt you, do you hurt them back? Students, are you ready for the mockery or hate that may be spewed your way in your schools or on your campus just because you openly live out your faith? Are you ready to accept it, turning the other cheek? Parents, how are your responses to the evil that your kids do to you? Is your discipline of your kids ever retributive instead of loving and corrective? Anyone here, when a friend backstabs you, and they hurt you and they maybe gossip about you or slander about you, do you fight back? you fight fire with fire? Just think of the, the last person that hurt you in your life. Probably not too hard to think about, right? Physically, emotionally, psychologically, verbally. And then think what Jesus' words would demand of you in that situation. John Stott concludes that what Jesus here demands of all his followers is a personal attitude to evildoers, which is prompted by mercy, not justice, which renounces retaliation so completely as to risk further costly suffering, which is governed neither by, never by the desire to cause them harm, but always by the determination to serve their highest good. What a challenge. <laughs> Goes so against our natural tendencies. Now, just as a side note, many take this passage to say that any kind of violence is wrong, ever. Right? So that all Christians must be pacifists, that war, capital punishment, all these never have a place. You shouldn't join the military or law enforcement. You can't even use self-defense. I don't have time for that debate today. We could talk about that another time. But I will say this, Jesus was talking specifically to his followers, and he was talking about the personal, the personal harm that is caused to you by other individuals, as an individual. Okay, this was not a teaching that was intended to be applied to nations, courts, or law enforcement. I don't believe that further this means that a Christian can't hold a position that, use, that requires a use of force. That's my personal conviction. And banning... Self-defense altogether seems to stretch things a bit far, in my opinion. That's possible. I'm not convinced by that. But anyway, I believe that these arguments about these things are really beside the point of what Jesus was trying to make. It's more simple than that. It's just when you are in this situation personally, when we should respond to evil not with retaliation, but with acceptance. Jesus then gives Five different, different examples to illustrate this. Turning the cheek was the first one. But I think the ones he's going to give in the rest of the passage, verse 40 to 42, make a slightly different point. It's probably no less surprising and definitely no less challenging. But we should respond to evil and its effects not with apathy, but with generosity. Okay, We, instead of apathetically refusing to act... We should respond to evil with generosity. So just in case you thought I was saying we're to take everything sitting down, we're not. But this may even be more surprising than that. We're to actually do things that show love for those who would harm us. Look how the illustration shifts in verse 40. 
And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So not only are we to turn the other cheek, we're to be willing to give things up. A a tunic was likely a garment that was worn close to your body while a cloak was worn over top. So Jesus is saying that if your shirt gets taken off your back, be ready to give your coat as well. Imagine if you were fighting over something, anything really today, with someone else. Say you couldn't agree over who owns an Xbox. All right, and you get so upset about this, it goes to small claims court. And you lose. Jesus is saying, be ready to give your TV as well. The point is, give up your own rights. Right? Give, hold your things loosely. Don't be so self-absorbed. We tend to insist that it's our way or the highway, that we have a, a right to justice. But sometimes life won't go the way you plan, and you'll lose. Are you prepared to show radical generosity to evil even then? That's the, the mind-boggling way that Jesus tells us to respond to the evil that is done to us. Instead of insisting on our own way, use it as an opportunity to show love. Same with the next picture, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In that day, Roman soldiers had a legal right to conscript random citizens at any time. So say it was a, a hot summer day and they're tired of trudging through the countryside and they come across you, a farmer tending your land, all right? They could yell at you, hey, you, come here, carry my gear for me. And you had an obligation to come and carry their gear for one mile. No more than that. That was the legal right, right? It was that far, no farther. But now Jesus was saying, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Don't just do what they ask. Go an extra mile, Message paraphrases verse 41 as, And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. I like that. So don't use the unfair circumstances in life to whine or complain. Don't waste your pain. It's in those moments then you can show just how different you are from the world around you. Martin Lloyd-Jones imagines what would happen next. says, the result will be that when you arrive, the soldier will say, who is this person? What is it about him that makes him act like this? He's doing it cheerfully and he's going beyond his duty. And they will be driven to this conclusion. This man is different. He seems to be unconcerned about his own interests. So I wonder, is there anything unfair in your life right now? Probably is. How are you responding to it? 
Verse 42 gives two final pictures of what this radical, selfless generosity looks like. But, but Jesus' instructions here are different than all his previous ones. Before, all the things that are done to us or could be done to us are all fairly evil or at least unjust. But the actions in this verse aren't necessarily evil at all. However, I would suggest that they are all effects of evil in our world. The results of evil in our world. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I talked about this recently, but brokenness and poverty are results of the fall. Right? If there was no sin in our world, there would be no poverty of any kind. But the fact is there is sin in our world. There is brokenness, and hence we're all broken people. And one of the resulting effects of this is that people are in constant need of things. So while begging and borrowing are not exactly evil, they are effects of it. And on the receiving end of them, they aren't really pleasant things either, are they? I'm confident that no one here enjoys other people begging from them, right? Neither do we particularly like lending things out. We don't trust people with our stuff. So when these negative things happen to us, how do we respond? I believe Jesus says here, generously. Generously. Know that these are are both actions of someone asking for something that is not theirs. They don't deserve it. They didn't earn it. And and we may deserve it. It, It's our stuff, our wealth, our earnings. Again, Jesus wants us to give up our rights. Here are our rights to what we own, as well as our downright obsession with ourself. Fulfilling ourself. We must see the inconvenient, unpleasant, icky situations as opportunities to serve others. Not just when we feel like it, but even more so when we don't. But we say, but give to everyone who asks of us, and and no matter what they ask for, well, no. That's not what Jesus says here. This could be taken to logical absurdity, right? If someone came and asked me to give, give them my wife, <laughs> right? Or, or someone comes up and says, please give me your house. Ha! Jesus said you have to now. <laughs> no, and sometimes... Sometimes the, the loving thing is to not give people what they're asking for. When a, when a drunk guy asks for money to buy booze, you don't give that to him. In, in those cases, I think the, the principle of loving your neighbor trumps indiscriminate giving. Does that make sense? But let's not discount this. Let's not discount just how radical this challenge is that Jesus gives us. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We have this automatic tendency to look after the needs and the wants of ourself first. That goes deep into our hearts and we end up not helping those who are in real need because of it. 
And thus, Jesus' command is another instance of, of him saying that we need to die to ourselves. Only once we die to ourselves can we truly live this generously and sacrificially. As Lloyd-Jones explains, no man can practice what our Lord illustrates here unless he has finished with himself, with his right to himself, his right to determine what he shall do. In other words, we must not be concerned about ourselves at all. The whole trouble in life, as we have seen, is ultimately this current about, concern about self, and that is something of which we must rid ourselves entirely. But notice one thing. If we can get to that point... It's almost like we can't be hurt at all. Right? Abusers, takers, taskmasters, beggars won't be able to bother us in the same way because we have ceased to live for ourselves and we're okay living for them now. Lloyd-Jones goes on to give some Super practical advice of how we're to daily live this out. He says to, to notice, note, realize whenever you find yourself reacting in, in defensive, self-defense or annoyance, when you, whenever you're feeling wronged or cheated or that you're suffering unjustly. And he says, the moment I feel this defensive mechanism coming into play, I must just quietly face myself and ask the following questions. Why exactly does this thing upset me? Why am I grieved by it? What is my real concern at this point? Am I really concerned for some general principle of justice and righteousness? Am I really moved and disturbed because I have some true cause at heart? Or, let me face it honestly, is it just myself? Is it just this horrible, foul, self-centeredness and self-concern, this morbid condition into which I have got, is it nothing but an unhealthy and unpleasant pride? Is it just myself? As we examine our hearts in those moments, if the Spirit convicts us of something, we have to learn to repent. It won't be easy. But repentance is the beginning of denying ourselves and following Christ. And as we follow him, we then have to ask, are we truly living generous lives? Are we, do we err on the side of giving too much and not too little? Has Jesus begun changing our hearts towards offensive and or needy people? Do we give whenever we have opportunity? Do we see it as a privilege? If you're looking for, for one step you could take to become more generous, we've begun a, a new project as a church alongside several other Ottawa churches to sponsor impoverished children from one community in Guatemala through Compassion Canada. We've already seen 15 children sponsored through Calvary in the last two months. That is amazing. It's awesome. It makes me very proud of you. But I know we can do more. Guilt trips totally aside here, all right? I do not want you to give out of guilt. But a need has been presented to us. We have an opportunity. So are we taking that opportunity to give? 
If you want to do this, come talk to me. I can help you with that. But you can see this as a way to obey Jesus' challenge. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. At the end of the day, though, we still wonder again, why? Why should we give and lend like this? Why should we be generous people? How is that a good response to evil? Or or not just something that is going to be abused or taken advantage of? Put it this way. This has been God's tactic since day one. He responds to our evil with mercy. I quoted from Romans 12 earlier, that passage about do not repay evil for evil. Do you know how that chapter ends just a couple verses later? It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is exactly what Jesus is saying here. We are to respond to evil in these good ways because that's how we overcome evil, with good Anger, revenge, violence, hatred, all won't cut it. Evil will overcome you. But, so if you want to actually overcome evil, to see victory over it, then you need to learn, then we need to learn how to accept it for now and how to be radically generous in the face of it. The other, bigger reason we should live in these generous ways is that we're following Jesus. And Jesus thoroughly exemplified this passage himself. In his incarnation, coming from heaven to earth, in his humble life, in his sacrificial death, he perfectly showed what a selfless life looks like. It was prophesied of Jesus in Isaiah 50, that I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He willingly turned the other cheek. And boy, was he ever slapped. He was then mocked, beaten, pierced, crucified, humiliated, and killed. And yet he held his peace. Showing infinite restraint and love. A total refusal to retaliate. If he did not go willingly, he wouldn't have gone at all. He didn't call down legions of angels to annihilate those who were hurting him. He could have so easily done that, so easily fought back. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so must we. If you didn't know, this is why many of us here choose to follow Jesus. 
He loved us to this extent. To the extent of dying for us. He died so that we might live. To, to live to righteousness. So we love him for this. We trust him because of this. We worship him. And his resurrection is proof that one day he will turn everything around, that he will be the judge, that he will overcome evil. If you don't yet follow him, we hope and pray that today might be the day that you choose to do so. That you would take that step. You will not be able to live how Jesus says to live here without first surrendering to him. Because he has to change your heart. Because it takes a, a new man, a new woman, a new self to live like this. And yet our new lives were secured for us by Jesus' death. And so we can trust him. Even as we die to ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are asking for something supernatural today. We cannot live this out on our own. Would your spirit move in us? Help us recognize the moments where we feel like retaliating, and we feel like we need revenge. And help us to run to you in those times, to confess our own sins, and to have you help us to respond the way you responded with such generous love for us. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.